Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. You know, I have a very great regard and respect for teachers. <laughs> uh, having the experience myself, I have a great respect for Scripture teachers. Uh, and some of that respect was gained by my own experiences in the classroom as a Scripture teacher. I remember a time a while back, oh, this was a few years ago now, that there was a pastor in our fellowship who was, had been teaching a high school scripture, te- uh, scripture class, and he was going on holiday or something. I'm not sure it was. I don't remember. But he asked me to cover his class for a month. And with a bit of fear and trepidation, I agreed to do it. And as I walked into that classroom that first day, that high school classroom, into my class walked a young boy. Now, I'll call his name Josh. Uh, Any resemblance to people living or dead or even in our auditorium this morning is purely coincidental. Um, But we'll call him Josh. It became pretty evident to me as Josh walked in the classroom that this boy was not interested in anything that I had to say not interested in God's Word, not interested in the message that was given, and he was going to not let anyone else listen to this lesson either. So as I started the lesson, he began to poke around at people and talk to people and distract them, and he'd ball up pieces of paper and he'd throw them and, and hit people in the head, and, and I tried to continue on with the message. And I, I simply had to step in when he all of a sudden got up and tipped over uh, another uh, classmate's desk right in the middle of class. And so I very kindly and firmly invited him to come up to sit in the front of the class, to which he said, no, he was not going to do that. I said, well, then I want you to stand, I want you to outside the door. I want you to not be a distraction to everyone. I want you out of the classroom. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I said, I'm going to go get your teacher and she will remove you. And the rest of the class said, oh, she won't do anything. She's afraid of him. And so despite the distraction, I had to continue on with the lesson. And uh, pretty upset. We got through it. And after that class, I began to walk to my car, grumbling and complaining to myself about this young boy, Josh, just aghast that he would have the nerve to do all the things that he did to to try to ruin my lesson uh, that day. And I got in the car, and I drove home, and then I met my wife, Rachel, at the door, and we started talking about how the day went and talked about this young boy, Josh, and what a pain he was and how angry I was at him. And, and she said, she said this, she said, well, tell me his name. She said, I'll pray for him. You know, in all my fussing, my prideful fussing and complaining, and grumbling, 
I myself had forgotten to do the most important thing that I could have done. I forgot to pray for Josh. And that was a, that was a reminder to me. So throughout that week, I began to pray for Josh. And as the month went by, things got better. Uh, he began to behave a little more. Now, he wasn't perfect, but we got through the month, and that was okay. But Titus chapter 3 gives an, uh, a, a very simple way to eliminate pride and bring humility into our lives, especially in dealing with others, and especially in dealing with people like Josh. Now, I don't usually use a lot of alliteration, that is, words starting with the same letter, uh, but I found a very interesting outline to kind of divide this chapter by, and we'll use it here this morning, at least a couple of those points. And we'll sum, it, sum up chapter 3 this way. Chapter 3 of Titus, we'll divide it into five points. The first point being verses 1 and 2, if we can get that slide up, verses 1 and 2, subjection. Subjection not only to God, uh, to God's authority, but to civil authority as well. Uh, point number two, salvation. That's found in verses 3 through 7. Talk about how, uh, how God has saved us and what He's done for us and the things that have happened to us in salvation. Uh, point number three, service. And we won't get into this one, uh, uh, this one and the rest of them this morning, but that's verse 8, and that's also verse 12 through 14, service. Uh, number four, separation. That's verses 9 through 11. And at the end, as, it, as in, is at the end of any book, uh, verse 15, a salutation. So you have subjection, salvation, service, separation, and salutation. Now, when we think of subjection, our first point, we think of subjection, we first of all, first and foremost, think of our responsibility to God, don't we? We are first and foremost to be subject to Him. We're to be submissive. We're to be conscious of His will in our lives and what He wants us to do. We're to be obedient to Him. We're to be obedient to Him and His Word. And of course, we're to be prayerful, constantly in communication with Him. But these first two verses of Titus chapter 3 are concerned with the believer's responsibility, not only to God, but also to society. So let's read what it says in the first few verses of Titus chapter 3. He says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. If a person is a true Christian, a true believer, it will be very evident in his character and should be very evident in his behavior towards civil, uh, civil society, particularly civil authorities, both in the community and in society, we, we, we might say, both in the community and in the country. We should be good citizens as believers. We're to be good subjects. Now, isn't it interesting in the context of Paul's writing here, who were the authorities in Paul's day? It was the Romans, weren't they? And the Romans really weren't very nice people, were they? In fact, many of those people in authority in that day were un very, very ungodly people. 
but yet Titus still commanded, uh, um, uh, Paul still commanded, uh, Titus is commanded to make clear to the Christians here and the island of Crete that they were to be good subjects. They were to obey the civil authorities. They were to be good citizens. They were to be in subjection to authority. Now, it is true that the Christian's citizenship is primarily a heavenly citizenship. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, it says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, uh, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are subject, first and foremost, right, to God. We're subject to him, but that certainly does not absolve us of our responsibility to be good citizens here on earth. You and I are part of the society in which we live, and as much as lies within us, we are to contribute to the smooth running of that society as we can as believers, as far as it is possible without compromising our Christian faith. And Titus is being urged here to remind these Christians on the island of Crete of their duties, of their responsibilities as citizens. Now, Paul himself in Romans chapter 13 tells us to be subject to authorities. Why? Because, well, he calls them a terror to evil. And he also calls them God's ministers. Did you know those people in authority over us Uh, Those people who are making the laws, there's God's ministers to us. Now, does that mean they don't make mistakes? Does that mean sometimes they might make a decision that would cause a conflict with us between obeying government and obeying God? Certainly that is the case. Sometimes, and uh, we can see this, examples of this, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We think of the book of Exodus, when uh, the, the midwives were commanded to kill uh, the male children. Uh, they came from the Israelites, and the midwives refused to do that, and God blessed them for that. We think twice in the book of Daniel, there are ex- examples of that. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, refused to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up, and they were thrown into a, a, a fiery furnace. Daniel, when he was told not to pray to, to uh, any other god except the king, uh, Daniel went into his room and he prayed to God, and of course he suffered the, uh, uh, the, uh, the wrath of the king for that, being thrown in a den of lions. Uh, Look at the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. The apostles were told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They were arrested. They were beaten. They were told not to preach. And what did they do when they got out? When they were released, they went out and they preached the gospel again. So there are times that happens. But remember, in each of those times when they disagreed, when they said, you know what, we have to obey God rather than men, they didn't resort to physical violence. They didn't storm the capital. Uh, They took whatever consequences it was peacefully. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 says this, therefore I exhort first of all that that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men 
for kings and all who are in authority, that we, we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We have to be subject to authorities, but also we want to mention the attitude of Christians to society in general. Not only must believers be subject to lawful authority, not only must believers be law-abiding citizens obeying the laws of the land, but their attitude towards all other members of society uh, needs to be right as well. And that is in view in verse 1 when Paul says to be ready for every good work. To be, to be ready to support every good project in society or in community, and also to do that which is right as a citizen who is law-abiding. Because we do live in a society. We do live with other people and amongst other people. Right? And as far as we can, we are to contribute, again, to the smooth running of that society. We have a responsibility to others. You know, the attitude of the day sometimes is, look, I'm, I'm looking out for number one. <laughs> I'm doing what's best for me. You know, that's not what God tells us to do, right? Number one, that's all that counts. Well, not to God. Not to God it doesn't, because God wants us to be ready for every good work. Verse 2 says this, to speak evil of no one. And I think that especially has to do with rulers and authorities. We, I think we, uh, we as Christians make a good habit of posting, I don't know, Facebook posts and making comments about our leaders that are very unkind sometimes. You know, how, you think about how many conversations would be non-existent if the command to obey the apostle here was obeyed. The command of the apostle was obeyed, speak evil of no one. I think we need to be very careful the way we speak about other people. We need to be very uh, careful about how we speak about other people's characters. And we remember what the book of James says about the tongue, James chapter 3, because it sets uh, sets very clearly forth the responsibility of the believer as far as their use of the tongue. James chapter 3, starting with verse 8, says this, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly sin. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. So he's showing the incongruity of it all. He's showing how contradictory that is, that we use the same tongue to bless God and also to curse our fellow man who is made in the image of God. And I'm sure you've met people who never seem to have a good word to say about anybody. Now, that's not a Christian characteristic. That's not what God wants us to do. Now, notice he goes on from there in Titus chapter 3 and verse 2, from saying, speak evil to, uh, of, of no one, to this, be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, we're to be peaceable. In the King James, it says we're not to be brawlers. In other words, we're not to be people who are to go around looking for, looking just to fight about everything that comes along, anything and everything. 
taking matters into our own hands may give us ourselves some relief, uh, some satisfaction, but it will destroy our testimony as Christians if we do. As a matter of fact, we're to be gentle. We're to be gentle. Now, we see uh, 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 above restrooms sometimes, particularly in America, these signs that say, ladies, and the other side says, gentlemen. Right? There are a lot of men who are not gentle. As a matter of fact, sometimes uh, the idea is that gentleness is not a characteristic that is desirable in men. But you know what? It takes a lot more of a man to be gentle than it takes for a man to be rough. It takes more of a man to be gentle. It's an easy thing for a man to be rough. It's not so easy for him to be gentle. It's a very thing, it's a very sad thing when Christians, especially people in churches like ours, get a reputation as people who would fight about just about everything. And then he mentions humility, and the King James says meekness. We know that word, meekness. Meekness, it's been said, is not weakness. Right? Meekness is strength under control. I'll tell you what meekness is. Meekness is when I could flatten you in a moment, but I choose not to do that. I choose to rein in my natural tendencies. And particularly meekness, when it comes to submitting to God's providences in your life, it's not weakness. In fact, it's a spiritual characteristic. Christ himself says this, uh, in, uh, in the Gospels, blessed are the meek. And meekness, of course, in Galatians chapter 5, meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. All Christians need to have this. Meekness or humility is in the context of living with other people, that characteristic whereby I can live peaceably with others in society. Even if it means putting up with wrongs done to me. And sometimes that happens. Blessed are the meek. We are to show all humility to all men. Now that's totally opposed to the world's idea of how we should react. The world's idea about how we should live. But you know what? That is God's idea as to how we are to live. With humility, with meekness. First uh, Peter 2.20 tells us this. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults that you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And to do that, to do that very thing, is to be like Christ, as we'll see in the next few verses here in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Uh, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, he left his cause with God. And you know, there are times when we have to do that. We simply have to leave our cause with him. Not take matters into our own hand. We're to show all humility to all men. So there's the challenge to us living in society. What kind of citizen am I? 
And am I careful in my daily walk before men? And these are matters that we need to be reminded of. But while the first two verses of Titus 3 have to do with the Christian subjection, I want to go on to the next subject and spend some time on this, which is salvation. Salvation. And you see that from verse 3 down to verse 7. Salvation. Notice the memory that Paul cultivates here in verse 3. It's really in the context of that statement, showing all humility to all men. Because there's a little word there at the beginning of verse 3 that joins it all together. What is that little three-letter word? For. For or because, in light of all these things I've just said, he said, for we ourselves were, past tense, also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So he wants them to think back. Uh, Think back about their own past lives and to remember what things were like before they became believers, before they were converted, in other words, our, he wants us to think on our sinful past. Our sinful past. You know, sometimes I do think we forget uh, about uh, what it was like before we were saved, before we knew Christ as our Savior. We tend to forget that. And in forgetting that, we have a tendency sometimes to look too harshly at sinners and be judgmental toward them. It's not to say that we're uh, agreeing with what they're doing or we're agreeing with the lifestyle that they have or, or anything like that. But remember this, Paul wants Titus to teach the people of God before you start to look too harshly at these other wicked sinners out there in Crete, cultivate your mem- memory uh, for a while and think about what you yourselves were like before you were saved. Remember what you were yourself. Now, reading Paul's epistles lately, I've been a bit surprised at the number of times he calls us to remember, to look back on our past, to see what things were like before we knew him. And you know what? Oftentimes, that remembrance is not a pretty sight, is it? In Ephesians chapter 2, this past tense is something that's on Paul's mind. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'll read it for you. And you he made alive who were, past tense, dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked past, uh, according to the course of the air, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves, again, past tense, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, past tense, by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. Now what is Paul doing here? Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers of what it used to be like in their lives. He's reminding them of that. Remember, Remember what you yourselves were like before God had mercy on you, before God showed His grace to you and saved you. Remember what things were like. 
So when you look at someone else who's living in sin, as you were, or they're doing things that are grievous in the sight of God, you think to yourself, but for the grace of God, there go I. Now notice these words again, Titus 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves were also. So again, cast your memories back to your unsaved days. What was your own condition back then? What was it like when you were not saved? Look back, look back and see how it was. And it will humble you. It truly will. To get the right view of your own condition as it was by nature. And it will keep you from a judgmental attitude towards sinners. It'll help you to look on them with compassion. John Calvin said this. He said, we must be humbled before God in order that we may be gentle toward others. Humble before God before we may be gentle toward others. So remember yourself. Remember what you've been delivered from. And you'll be better disposed towards others who are still in their sinful state. Remember what you were. All of us were what? Well, Paul gives us that answer too. All of us were, verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Every believer, every believer in this auditorium this morning, every believer listening to me this morning, Every believer can honestly say that I was once in a wicked state before God. I was depraved. I was utterly incapable of righteousness. I was serving my own interest. I didn't care about the needs of others. I didn't care about the interests of others. And as a matter of fact, I despised them. And if you think about it, we are no more deserving of God's goodness than they are. We all deserve hell. We all deserve wrath forever. We're no better than they are. But then Paul turns from the memory of our sinful past to the mercy of God. And he mentions in these next few verses the kindness and the love of God in verse 4. He mentions the mercy of God in verse 5. But he also talks about the grace of God in verse 7. So you have these four terms, kindness, love, mercy, grace. What great theological terms. What great things God has done for us. You know, whenever we were foolish and disobedient and deceived and we were serving these various lusts and pleasures, God didn't leave us to our own devices, did he? But he put forth his mercy toward us. And he showed kindness toward us in salvation. Again, if I could refer back to this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Because the same ideas are here in Ephesians chapter 2. The same ideas are in view. It tells us after the description of what we were, 
in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What a great passage. What a great God. Now look at those terms again. You'll see the same terms, right? Mercy, love, grace, kindness, all of which God bestowed upon us. Now, these words of Paul were meant to eliminate any kind of feeling of pride that may have filled the hearts of these people in Crete. You know, pride is a terrible thing. Pride is a destructive thing. And we need to remember as Christians, and what we need to remember at all times, is that the only reason that we differ from anybody else who's not saved, the only reason we differ from them at all is because of the grace and the goodness of God that He's bestowed upon us. That's the only reason. It's because of God's grace, because of God's mercy. Look, at, look with me at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why do you act as though you're better than somebody else when actually the fact is the only reason you differ from others is because of the grace that you've received from God? As it is here in Titus chapter 3, there's this appearing of divine love this, and, and divine mercy and kindness. Now, this mercy that Paul speaks of, it's unmerited. It's unmerited mercy. Look at uh, Titus 3 and verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This mercy, God has bestowed upon us is unmerited mercy. You talk about basis. What is its basis? Well, the basis of this mercy, it's founded only upon the good pleasure of God. That's the basis of it. The good pleasure of God. There's no reason no reason whatsoever that can be found in you why God would bestow His grace and mercy and goodness upon us. There's no reason from uh, our character or from our works or anything else why God would be good to us, why God would save us. God has shown mercy on us because, because God has chosen to do that. Paul quotes our Lord in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15 when he says this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the Lord has shown mercy on us 
for the sake of his own son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 and verse 32 tells us this, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So that's why God has mercy on us. It's for Christ's sake. It's for the sake of His own dear Son that He's done it for us. So it's nothing within us. It's nothing about our character. It's nothing about our works. It's not about us. And we also see that it is never bestowed apart from Christ. Look at, verse, uh, look at Titus 3 and verse 7. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see, there is no salvation. There is no mercy. There's no grace. There's no salvation apart from Christ. There is no mercy apart from him. We are saved by grace through him. Through Jesus Christ. We're saved from wrath. Now, what are the results? What are the blessings of this mercy? Verse 5. And there are some great, great theological words here. There's that word saved. According to His mercy, He saved us. Salvation. The term saved is good. I like the term saved. Sometimes we like to use, you know, so-and-so made a profession of faith. Or so-and-so... trusted Christ or something like that. But, you know, you use the word saved, uh, it's good because it signifies something that is done for you, right? If, if you're drowning and someone jumps in and saves you, they saved you, right? You didn't save yourself. It was something that was done for you. And while the full enjoyment of our salvation won't be ours until we're with Christ in eternity, we can say with Paul, I have been saved. He saved us. And He saved us how? He saved us by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration. You know the new birth, being born again, regeneration, it's akin to a washing. It's like getting washed. New life is introduced to the dead sinner in regeneration. And He's cleansed and He's thoroughly washed from all sin. And then there's this statement, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Sanctification, whereby a man is gradually conformed into Christ's image day by day. Christ works in our hearts to make us more and more like Him. And it's an ongoing thing. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 tells us we are renewed day by day. Of course, there is a sense in where we're sanctified once and for all at the moment of salvation, set apart from the world, set apart from sin, set apart unto God. Yes, there is that uh, singular sanctification, but it's also a daily thing as Christ works in our hearts to conform us more and more into His image. And then there's this term, we're justified by His grace. The word justification implies two things. Well, negatively, justification implies declared not guilty by God. 
And positively, we have the we have the positive righteousness of Christ implied to us. A righteousness which is not ours, but the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. If you look at Romans chapter 3 and you look at Romans chapter 5, it tells us we are justified by faith. We are justified by faith in Him. We're justified by faith in His blood. We're justified by the blood of Christ, Romans 5 and verse 9 tells us. We are saved from wrath through Him. Salvation is all of grace. It's all of grace. Now, what's the purpose of it? Verse 7, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That we should become heirs. You know what that means? That means we have an inheritance. An inheritance. That which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now what is ours in Christ Jesus? You know, normally when we talk about an inheritance, we talk about money. Or jewels or possessions or material things, don't we? But here it's not talking about money. We're talking about something greater than that. Peter calls it this. He calls it an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We have a sure hope of eternal life and glory. And so what's it all based upon? I mean, why do we have this inheritance? We see that we have a sure hope of eternal life and glory. And it's all based on this. It's all based entirely on God's mercy and God's grace. Not works. Not anything within us. It's purely the goodness of God that He's bestowed upon us. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I think it's a really, really smart for us as believers to occasionally look back. Especially when we're dealing with people who, whether lost or saved, would tend to disappoint us. And we all deal with those kinds of people every day, right? We work with those kinds of people. We're in families with those kinds of people sometimes. And I think looking back at our past life, looking back at how life was like before we came to know Jesus, before we were saved, I think it'll do three things for us. First of all, number one, it will eliminate any sense of pride that we might have in ourselves. It'll humble us. You know what? That's a whole lot better than a lot of other ways that God could humble us, huh? Sometimes he does need to do that in my life. Sometimes I'm pretty stubborn. He needs to think of other ways to, uh, uh, to humble me. 
Number two, it'll give us a greater appreciation of exactly what God, in His kindness, in His love, in His grace, and in His mercy, has brought us out of. And how far He's taken us since then, huh? You know, we sing that great hymn of the faith, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know what? That's something that we as believers can sing from our hearts. Once we were spiritually lost, now we're spiritually found. Once we were spiritually blind, now we can spiritually see. And even though I didn't deserve it, even though Christ came to me as a dirty, rotten sinner, and I didn't deserve His grace and His mercy, God has chosen to be good to me. God has chosen to be good to you. And finally, number three, it will help us to look on others who are still in their sinful state People like this young man, Josh. To look on them with a heart of compassion and love toward them. And to reach out to them. Remember, the the sinner who lives without God today could very well be the faithful Christian serving God tomorrow. And I figure such was the case of many of us. That's the message of this portion of Scripture, that God can reach down and touch the heart of any individual. As messed up as they are, and totally change them around through His goodness and His grace and mercy and give them salvation. And Paul is saying, remind them, remind them of these things. Remember that we ourselves were also in this spiritual condition. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were serving these various lusts and pleasures. (coughs) We were on our way to hell. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, He saved us. He saved us through, through His mercy and through His grace. And for those who we know who are still living in foolishness and disobedience and deception, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, we pray that God might extend the same mercy to them as He's extended to us. And may we peaceably and gently and humbly work towards those ends. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word today. Lord, we have so much to thank you for. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that even though we did not deserve it, even though we were dreadful sinners, deceived, disobedient, on our way to hell, 
We were enemies of yours. You reached down and you touched our lives. You convicted our hearts and you made us trust in you. You gave us salvation. And now, Lord, we give thanks for your mercy, for your kindness, for your grace. Lord, I pray that as we think about this, as we think of your goodness that has touched our lives, bringing us out of the horrible pit we were in and setting our feet upon a rock, we pray that you'd humble us. Lord, as we go out into this world today and mingle with our co-workers and with our neighbors and with sometimes with our own family members, Lord, that you might help us have a heart of compassion for others who are still in their sinful state. Lord, that we might bear a word of testimony, that we might direct them and draw them towards you, and that, Lord, you would save them, that they might receive the same goodness and mercy and grace that you've extended to us in our own lives. Lord, may we humbly do so. We are your servants, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.